Chapter Twenty Nine of the Ranch Man by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Captive. Carrington's experiences with Taylor had not dulled the man's savage impulses, nor had they cooled his feverish desire for the possession of Marion Harlan. In his brain rioted the dark, unbridled passions of those progenitors he had claimed in his talk with Parsons on the morning he had throttled the little man in his rooms above the castle. For a moment he had postponed the real beginning of his campaign for the possession of Dawes. His venomous hatred for Taylor and his passion for the girl overwhelming his greed. He had watched the departure of Keats and his men, a flush of exultation on his face, his eyes alight with fires that reflected the malignant hatred he felt. And when Keats and the others disappeared down the trail that led to the arrow, Carrington spent some time in Dawes. Shortly after noon, he rode out the river trail toward the big house with two men that he had engaged to set the interior in order. Carrington had not seen the house since the fight with Taylor in the front room, and the wreck and ruin that met his gaze as he stood in the door brought a sullen pout to his lips. But he intended to exact heavy punishment for what had occurred at the big house and as he watched the men setting things to order, mending the doors and repairing the broken furniture, he drew mental pictures that made his eyes flash with pleasure. He felt by this time Keats and his men should have settled with Taylor. After that, he himself would make the girl pay. So he was having the house put in order, that again it would be habitable, and then... When that was done, and Taylor out of the way, he would go to the Arrow after the girl. Before he went to the Arrow, he would await the return of Keats with the news that Taylor would no longer be able to thwart him. Never in his life had he met a man he feared as he feared Taylor. There was something about Taylor that made Carrington's soul shrivel. He knew what it was. It was his conviction of Taylor's absolute honorableness, as arrayed against his own beastly impulses. But that knowledge merely served to intensify his hatred for Taylor. Toward evening, Carrington rode back to Dawes with the men, and while there, he sought news from Keats. Danforth, from whom he inquired, could tell him nothing, and so Carrington knew that Taylor had not yet been disposed of. But Carrington knew the time would not be long now, and in resort of questionable character he found two men, who listened eagerly to his proposals. Later, the two men accompanying him, he rode again to the big house. And just as dusk began to settle over the big level at the foot of the long slope, and while the last glowing light from the day still softly bathed the big house, throwing it into bold relief on the crest of its flat-topped hill, Carrington 
was standing on the front porch, impatiently scanning the basin for signs of Keats and his men. For a time he could distinguish little in the basin, for the mists of twilight were heavy down there. And then a moving object far out in the basin caught his gaze, and he leaned forward, peering intently, consumed with eagerness and curiosity. A few minutes later, still staring into the basin, Carrington became aware that there were two moving objects. They were headed toward Dawes and proceeding slowly, and at last, when they came nearer and he saw they were two women on horses, he stiffened and shaded his eyes with his hands. And then he exclaimed sharply, and his eyes glowed with triumph, for he had recognized the women as Marion Harlan and Martha. Moving slowly so that he might not attract the attention of the women, should they happen to be looking toward the big house, he went inside and spoke shortly to the two men he had brought with him. An instant later the three, Carrington leading, rode into the timber surrounding the house, filed silently through it, and, with their horses in a slow trot, sank down the long slope that led into the big basin. For a time they were not visible, as they worked their way through the chaparral on a little level near the bottom of the slope, and then they came into view again in some tall sacaton grass that grew as high as the backs of their horses. They might have been swimming in that much water, for all the sound they made as they headed through the grass towards the Dawes Trail. For they made no sound, and only their heads and the heads of their horses appeared above the swaying grass. But they were seen. Martha, riding at a little distance behind Marion, straining her eyes to watch the trail ahead, noted the movement in the sacaton and called sharply to the girl. There's something moving in that grass over to your right, honey. It wouldn't be no cattle here. There's never no cattle round here. For there ain't no water. Lousy, she exclaimed, as she got a clear view of them. It's men. Marion halted her horse. Martha's voice had startled her, for she had not been thinking of the present. Her thoughts had been centered on Taylor. A shiver of trepidation ran over her, though, when she saw the men, she gathered the reins tightly in her hands, ready to wheel the animal under her, should the appearance of the men indicate the imminence of danger. And when she saw that danger did indeed threaten, she spoke to the horse and turned it toward the back trail, for she had recognized one of the three men as Carrington. But the horse had not taken a dozen leaps before Carrington was beside her, his hand at her bridle. And as her horse came to a halt, Carrington's animal lunged against it, bringing the two riders close together. Carrington leaned over, his face close to hers. She could feel his breath in her face as he laughed jeeringly, his voice vibrating with passion. So it is you, eh? Huh? I thought for a moment that I had made a mistake. 
holding her horse's bridle rein with a steady pull that kept the horses close together, he spoke sharply to the two men who halted near Martha. Get the nigger. I'll take care of this one. And instantly, with a brutal, ruthless strength and energy that took the girl completely by surprise, Carrington threw a swift arm out, grasped her by the waist, drew her out of the saddle, and swung her into his own, crosswise, so that she lay face up, looking at him. She fought him then, silently, ferociously, though futilely, for he caught her hands, using both his own, pinning hers, so that she could not use them, meanwhile laughing lowly at her efforts to escape. Even in the dusk she could see the smiling, savage exultation in his eyes, the gloating, vindictive triumph, and her soul revolted at the horror in store for her, and the knowledge nerved her to another mighty effort. Tearing her hands free, she fought him again, scratching his face, striking him with all her force with her fists, squirming and twisting, even biting one of his hands when it came close to her lips as he essayed to grasp her throat, his eyes gleaming with ruthless malignance. But her efforts availed little. In the end her arms were pinned again to her side. He had pulled a rope from his saddle-horn and bound them. Then, as she lay back and glared at him, muttering imprecations that brought a mocking smile to his lips, he urged his horse forward and sent it clattering up the slope, the two men following with Martha. End of chapter 29